Welcome to Pod for the Cause, the official podcast of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights and the Leadership Conference Education Fund, where we expand the critical conversations of civil and human rights issues of our day. I'm your host, Ashley Allison, coming to you from Washington, D.C. And like we start off every show, we got the Pod Squad, where we talk pop culture and social justice. Today, I'm joined by Brent Johnson, Executive Administrative Assistant for the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, Sonam Naruker, Get Out the Count Manager for the Census Counts Campaign, and Sakira Cook, the Criminal Justice Reform Director for the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. Y'all, we're coming from y'all, apartments, homes, wherever you stay. So I <laughs> want to start off with, I don't know if you're going to laugh, you're going to cry or whatever, but Tiger King. I'm just gonna go there. Sona, thoughts, Tiger King. I feel like the reason it's so popular right now is because it's so crazy that it takes away from the crazy lives that we're living right now in the pandemic. So it's like, okay, we can watch this and be like surprised and shocked because I think every day people are feeling like shocked in this new reality. But it is really crazy. I love it. We don't do spoiler alerts. Takira, have you seen it? I think I've seen the first two or three episodes. That's enough. And I was like, I can't watch no more of this. What is this? What what have I been sucked into? This is too much of a vortex suck that I don't think my mind is ready to really get down this rabbit hole. And I figured out everything is not what it seems in this show. (laughs) All the players, all of them are not what they seem. You know, I think we've Uh, hitted people against each other in a way that I'm not really sure is appropriate. <laughs> yes, and we'll circle back for like a recap when we can do for a little sure. You haven't seen it, right? But you don't know what you're missing, okay? I haven't seen it and I do not plan on watching it because there is so much better out there for us to be doing with our lives. And you know what? I will die on this hill. One of the individuals ends up interacting with the justice reform system and actually is in isolation because of coronavirus. And I know, Sakira, what have you been seeing happen around coronavirus and the justice system in particular? National-based organizations, state and local organizations are really using COVID-19 in this moment to highlight what we've been saying all along, the the Mm -hmm. real structural inequities that exist within our criminal legal system and are laying bare the challenges that people face who are incarcerated, who are incarcerated in jails, in held pretrial, people who are there who are elderly, people who are there who have underlying health conditions, people who should be eligible for compassionate release because they're near the end of their lives. All of the reforms that we've called for in the past are pretty apparent and relevant today. And if it takes this moment for us to get as many people out as possible, that is great and that is amazing, but we need more. I mean, Congress hasn't really focused on this population 
The federal government is fumbling its response to COVID-19 in federal prisons. And while this young man has been placed in isolation to shield him off, at least eight individuals have lost their life in federal penitentiaries because of this virus. And these are all people who, five of the first seven, were serving time for drug offenses. And so these are all people who were supposed to have been released and should have probably been released a long time ago and unfortunately lost their life in federal prison because our system is just broken. I couldn't agree with you more, Sakira. One institution, though, that is going on right now, and I finished mine. I'm trying to cover up my address, but if you can see, it's my census form. I filled it out yesterday. I did it online. And so now you work on the census. What have you been seeing as some of the challenges that have been coming up because of COVID-19 around census? This is the big moment for all of us to be in the field and to be organizing around the census and really encouraging those historically undercounted communities to get counted and fill out their form. Mm-hmm. Because we have to shift field tactics, like a lot of the tactics that we use for historically undercounted communities is that face-to-face interaction. You know, you're going to church, you're talking to your local person that's selling you milk or something like that. You know, these are the ways that you engage and that's the way you organize. We're having to shift our organizing tactics completely to being virtual and digital online, going from having a rally in person to a virtual rally, which is still pretty cool, but very hard. But then also thinking about all of the people out there that don't have access to social media or any digital means, and there's no way to really reach them. And so a lot of our groups on the ground and our coalition is really grappling with the fact that we have to completely shift our field tactics. We're doing it, but it's taking some learning, you know. And then on top of that, the census operations itself is on pause right now until April 15th, and that could get delayed even further. And so we're just trying to figure out like, what does this mean? Not just like census operations, but also our organizing and how can we encourage people to still fill it out? Because they can still go online, they can still call in by phone, or they can wait for the paper questionnaire that should start arriving this week in people's mailboxes. So there are ways to fill it out, but it's just the ability to encourage people to fill it out and shift those tactics of how we talk about the census it has really changed under COVID-19. So even though some stuff has been paused by the Census Bureau, the census is still happening. So people need to Mm -hmm. fill out your census. It's really important. Brent, I want to come to you because there's justice reform and immigration rights, but then there's just plain out racist comments that are being made and homophobic comments. And civil rights is not a partisan thing. It's a right that all people get. And we have this president, Donald Trump, who has been saying the person who leaves his prayer group is saying that coronavirus is because of gay people. Then we have the president connecting it to racial groups as this type of flu or connecting, I don't even want to say it because it's so offensive. If you had 30 seconds to say something to the people who are saying these terrible, ridiculous things, what would you tell them about why using these derogatory terms and associating this virus with a particular group of people is one, just wrong, but two, harmful? I would say, a, that it's wrong, it's harmful, and we unfortunately are living in a time where we can't trust what's coming out of the White House, and we don't have uh, kind of that moral authority and leadership in the White House that we have historically had under Republican administrations and Democratic administrations alike. So I would say listen to your public health officials, first mm. off. Uh, Dr. Fauci. Dr. Fauci, exactly. And listen to the state-level mm-hmm. officials across the country. Republicans and Democrats alike in a number of these states are taking this threat seriously, and they're not resulting through to 
to racism and to really cut some of this just crazy rhetoric that I think is not helpful and quite frankly is going to result in people dying. And so Mm -hmm. listen to your public health officials, listen to your state level officials who are proving across the country that they're taking this really seriously. I'm here with Sonam Naruker, Sakira Cook, Brent Johnson, all members of the Leadership Conference, all experts in their own right in different areas. The last episode I recorded was in studio and it was earlier in March. And we talked about like coronavirus and people needing to get flu shots. Little did we know four weeks later, we would be here doing it on Zoom. But now Zoom has become this thing that has taken a life of its own. Somebody was like, Skype lost like a three to one lead on Zoom, like it was an NBA playoff or something. But (laughs) Zoom has become like this thing, right? What's the most common phrase you use (laughs) on Zoom? Please mute your phone. Sorry, I was talking and I was muted. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I'm always like, the people who get on Zoom but then just use their phone and not the video, I'm like, what's that 202-229 number? (laughs) Who's infiltrating? (laughs) We only got a little more time. I got one more subject to talk to. And it would be like, if I tossed this thing and one of y'all caught it, those challenges... Oh, uh, yeah. Us, I'm a savage. Right? <laughs> then we have the don't rush challenge where people are like, <laughs> and then oh, they go, who do you think, what's the best version of these challenges that you think you've seen? I particularly like the don't rush challenge. And as a single Black woman, speak <laughs> on it, girls. Speak on it. I fully appreciated the challenge of the Black men who were medical professionals, who were doctors, they were anesthesiologists. It was amazing. I was like yeah. the white coat and then the, oh, whoo, child. Okay, that should have turned out with an But yes, Sorry. I hear you. That was, that was my favorite. What about you, Donum? Well, I love the Savage Challenge because I used to dance, so I love watching dance challenges. Kiki Palmer's Savage Challenge is really great. She's also doing all of the TikTok challenges and posting them on Instagram. So it's just enjoyable. That's amazing. I got to check that one out. Brent, what about you? Close this out. I was against TikTok before the pandemic, but I have been convinced that it's time. So I got to go create a TikTok and get in on some of these challenges. Well, I really like the Savage Challenge, but I think I do like the Don't Rest Challenge the most. Y'all, I have had such a joy catching up, not having to talk so much work because all the Zoom calls usually are work. Thank you, Sakira, Brent, Sona, for joining the pod squad. Coming up next, we have a really special guest, Manita Gupta, so don't go anywhere. Welcome back to Pod for the Cause, where we've been talking all things COVID-19 and the impact it has on civil and human rights. Today, we have a very special guest with us, President and CEO of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, Vanita Gupta. Welcome to the show, Vanita. Hey, Ashley. Good to be here. There is so much going on in our country, and you lead a large coalition around civil and human rights. Just a couple weeks ago, Congress passed something called the CARES Act. What is the CARES Act about and why is it important for our country? 
Well, the CARES Act is about trying to help the most frontline vulnerable people during this COVID crisis. We are seeing staggering impact on our economy, people losing their jobs, not enough funding for our public health infrastructure that can actually meet the moment. So we've got hospitals without enough healthcare workers. We have healthcare workers who are dangerously exposed to COVID because of lack of basic equipment. You know, you would think because we are the richest country in the world that we wouldn't have these problems, but we have shortages of ventilators. We don't have mass testing available. And so COVID was an effort to basically be an immediate stopgap for the most kind of emergent situations. But the reality is, is that we haven't even peaked with the virus in this country yet. And more and more people are dying. We still continue to have major shortages and there's no end in sight to what the impact will be on the economy. So it's pretty likely that we're going to need a lot more than the CARES Act. But the CARES Act is a $2 trillion stimulus package that covers a whole range of funding for the most needy. And then also has about a $500 billion part of that $2 trillion going to corporate America. And some of that is for a stimulus package for companies. There are different views on that. But it was really important that there be federal money for some of the most vulnerable among us right now. And some of the most vulnerable that weren't necessarily addressed in the CARES Act are people who are incarcerated. So What do you want people to know about what Congress and I guess the next version of the CARES Act should be doing to protect those people? Even in the best of times, it's people in prison and jails and detention centers who are often too often invisible. So you can imagine that in this time of great crisis, too many people are forgetting that there are hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children in our nation's prisons, jails, and detention centers who are living in very confined spaces where COVID, their kind of transmission risk is so high. There's staff that are going in every day that are dangerously exposed to COVID. And so there's been a lot of concern, but probably not enough concern about what is going to happen. What's the plan for people in these spaces of confinement in our prisons? And You know, we all know, because this is the work that you and I do, and that the leadership conference has long been doing, that we have way too many people in our nation's prisons and jails. We've had a long-term addiction to incarceration, a problem with mass incarceration. And what we are finally beginning to see is some acknowledgement on the part of state and local officials, governors in Republican and Democratic states saying that we need to release folks, that there are segments of people that are simply old that should have been released on compassionate release. There's also a lot of people that, frankly, you and I have been arguing shouldn't have been in our nation's uh, uh, prison system to begin with. And now kind of the irony is that governors are beginning to really realize that and are releasing more and more people as a result, really in response to this public health crisis. Though I think for us, it's begging the question of why were these folks there to begin with? We will continue long past COVID to push on these issues and to push on these questions. But right now, people are in harm's way. And there have been folks that have died. There are, I think, eight people that have died in a federal facility in Louisiana. That's just in one facility. Rikers Island in New York is a huge hotbed. We're really worried about folks in Rikers. So These are some of the concerns that we have right now for justice-involved communities and people. Yeah, and then there is the immigrant population who was already so vulnerable, already 
terrorized by this current administration. What's going on with folks that are on the border, people seeking asylum? Like what is happening in that community? Frankly, I don't think that we know enough about what's happening in our immigration detention facilities. I know organizations like the ACLU are suing right now to get people out, particularly children out, children of asylum seekers out. But Our immigration detention facilities, our nation's prisons and jails in the best of times are fairly inhumane in a lot of places. And now there's a real concern about who's paying attention to these communities right now. There's a whole slew of lawyers in the legal community that are filing lawsuits right now to try to get folks out. There's been a feeling of the border. There's been a lot of concern that Stephen Miller, who's been kind of behind the scenes and sometimes at the head of it, orchestrating this really anti-immigrant, racist kind of agenda from the administration is now using COVID to get through the ceiling of our borders and the like. But I will say right now, there has been a lot of concern about restricting travel for public health reasons. The concerns will be that we not allow this moment for politicians with nefarious agendas to kind of manipulate or weaponize COVID for their own partisan agenda. We need to protect people's public health and safety first and foremost. And so we've got to keep an eye just as like an NGO community about what's happening to these vulnerable communities and making sure rules don't get set up that then later on, once we are through this crisis, we then regret and can't push back on. So it's kind of that dual purpose that we have to serve right now. Something that could change the way leadership is actually handling this. And when I mean leadership, I mean the president, I mean Congress, I mean governors and secretaries of state is the election. And I know the leadership conference has really been paying close attention on the election. A big conversation about vote by mail has been brought to the forefront. Why is vote by mail the thing that people should be supportive of, shouldn't be supportive of? Like, what is it about vote by mail that we need to know and that we might not know? Right now, a lot of states have postponed their primaries, as you know, because if voters are really concerned and public health officials are saying conditions are too dangerous to have in-person voting right now. And so a a number of states have postponed, but there's the real question about, look, we have seven months until the November election. Right now, states have the time, if they have the political will and the money that they need from Congress to actually get ready and to put policy options in place that will give voters the options of how to participate in November. The election in November has to happen. We have had elections through depressions, through famines, through wars, through Spanish flu, and this November election should be no different. But the thing is, the state needs to have the funding and the policy changes put in place to ensure that voters have options. And so one of the major things is giving voters the option to vote by mail, which is to vote from home. There needs to be a whole bunch of things that ensure that voting by mail is fair. Government needs to send ballots to every eligible voter. You need to have prepaid or free postage so that folks can send it back and not be worried about money. There can be secure drop-off boxes and community pickups. There needs to be corrective measures to how secretaries of state ensure that folks aren't kicked off of the rolls because of misspellings and signatures. I'm a daughter of an immigrant with a different name. That happens all the time where my name is misspelled. I don't want to be kicked off of the rolls. But the reality too, though, is that voting by mail is not enough. If you move to an all vote by mail option only and you take away in-person voting, you could potentially disenfranchise certain voters of color. In Arizona, for example, Native American voters, 26% of them don't have a postal box address. 
And so if by not having it, that means they just would not be able to vote. They wouldn't be able to vote unless you had some form of safe in-person voting. And there's a mm. whole bunch of options that folks can put into place. It's not just Native American voters. Older African-American voters, there's been a longer term historic distrust of the U.S. Post Office in terms of putting your ballots in. There's been concerns about for low-income urban voters about the expressive nature of going to the polls, souls to the polls was a whole movement. And so what you need to be putting in place are other options as well. We should be making sure that we have expanded online voter registration because right now there are a few government agencies that are open to register to vote. You need uh, extended in-person voting. If you moved it to at least to two weeks before the election, you could make sure that there aren't these crushes of people on election day all showing up at the polls, you could actually ensure social distancing and follow all the CDC compliant guidelines to make sure voting can be done in person safely and protecting people's health. You need these kinds of options in place that can then ensure whether a person is voting by mail or is able to vote in person while doing all of the social distancing, at least then our democracy will continue to function. And these are some of the things that the leadership conference has been pushing Congress on to make sure that Congress can give $2 billion of funding to the state. It's really small amount when you think about the total of the $2 trillion package in the third stimulus bill, but the states need money to do this and they need time. It's a really big deal to have states totally change their election process and they can't do it overnight. But right now we've got seven months. States need to hear the urgency of this as this Congress. Yeah, we see what could happen when states don't have enough time to prepare. We have my home state of Ohio, where there was a lot of confusion around that yeah. primary. When states don't have enough prepare, the voter ultimately suffers. Look, civil rights work was challenging in this administration before we were all confined to our homes, walking around with masks because we didn't want to catch a virus. What is giving you hope in this moment to stay diligent and continue to fight for people's rights? I'm not going to deny to you, it's been hard because COVID has thrown what has been already challenging work into stark relief. It's made it that much more challenging. And there's all kinds of, you know, partisan efforts to undermine our democracy right now. And they're trying to use COVID to do it. But the thing that gives me hope is, again, in this moment, there's like a whole crew of amazing people, both here in Washington, but all over the country that are working really hard to protect our elections, to protect our census. They've been giving their life, soul, and blood for the last several years, frankly, to make sure that we can have the infrastructure in place in the states, that we can be supporting state-based organizations to do, build power and do the work that they need to do, that we are able to kind of have the resilience to fight this effort and to make sure that COVID doesn't torpedo our plans to make sure that we get to define the next decade of this country. So that's the stuff that gives me hope. I'm also hopeful, and we were both in Selma a month ago, and you think about what John Lewis went through, and when we encountered him in the middle of the Edmund Pettus Bridge a month ago with pancreatic cancer, telling us to have hope, telling us that he had had his skull cracked by billy clubs held by Alabama state troopers in the middle of that bridge, and saying, have hope, don't give up, give everything you've got to fight and defend the right to vote. And just like thinking that he was telling us this 55 years after he was almost killed, and he has never for one day stopped that fight. We can do this. It's going to be really hard. 
but we're going to do it because we are standing on the shoulders of giants and we have been preparing for this moment. But we have to know that none of us is holding this alone. We are working yeah. as a kind of whole community of people and we can't feel that burden alone. But by working in community and kind of pushing as hard as we can right now collectively, I think that's the best we can ask of ourselves. And that's a lot. So, Vanita, I want to end with something new we're doing on the show. We're taking questions from our audience. So if you listen to the show and you follow us at Pod for the Cause, you can submit a question and you might hear it on one of our next episodes. Now, this question comes from Rebecca Coakley, and it goes back to something we were just talking about. She says, with the push for vote by mail due to physical distancing, how will we ensure that in-person options are still available for the disability community who can't vote by mail? Hashtag CryptoVote, hashtag we are essential. Benita, what would you say to Rebecca? So first of all, Rebecca is an amazing advocate and activist, and she is exactly right to flag that vote by mail isn't accessible to everyone. It's not accessible in the ways that we just talked about, Ashley, but it's also not accessible for all people with disabilities. There's a lot of online activity that remains out of reach for people with certain disabilities. And for a long time, we've been fighting for access polling places, physical access to polling places. But at least there, we've made a lot of strides because of the Americans with Disabilities Act. We've got to make sure that there still is safe in-person voting. The way to do that in a time where we may still need to be doing social distancing is to comply with the CDC guidelines, but also extend the number of days that these polling places are open. If you extended them by at least two weeks, you would avoid you know, the mass onslaught of a lot of people at the polling places. You could have them spread out more, do the social distancing. So that's why we've got to be able to preserve some form of in-person voting, even while promoting the option of vote by mail all over the country. All right, folks, you heard it from Vanita Gupta, CEO, President of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. Stay tuned for my hot takes where I get a few things off my chest in three minutes or less. So I sing a song for the hustlers trading at the bus stop. Single mothers waiting on a check to come. Young teachers, student doctors, sons on the front line. No, and they don't get to run. This goes up to the underdog. Keep on keeping that what you love. And you'll find that someday soon enough you will rise up, rise up, yeah. Welcome back to Pod for the Cause. And between the pod squad and Vanita Gupta and talking all things COVID-19, I have a few things I want to get off my chest. You know, this weekend, I went to the grocery store and it was the weekend after they said that people need to wear masks in public, not just, you know, if you're a hat risk, but all people should be wearing masks when in public. And I was like, what does that really mean? Is it when I'm at the grocery store? But I did it. I put my mask on. It wasn't an official mask. It was actually my ski mask. So that was all I had. And I covered my nose and my mouth. And the reason why I did it was because I'm healthy, even though we have seen this disease is taking the lives of people who are healthy. But my father isn't as healthy. He has a kidney transplant. And so he is immune compromised. And so I owe it to my father. I owe it to everybody else out there. I owe it to the elderly people to listen to what the public health officials are saying and wear the mask. You aren't too cute to wear them. You aren't too important to wear them. You aren't that sophisticated where you are the exception to the rule. Wear the mask. We have been in our homes for four weeks now because people are not following the rules. People are on beaches. 
having a good time as though if we weren't just to follow the rules and flatten the curve, we could not get back out to our normal lives at some point. Every time you think you are too important or too good to listen to what the public health officials are saying, you are prolonging this event. You are putting me at risk. You are putting my father at risk. We don't have enough tests to know what's really happening. But I, Ashley Allison, the host of Pod for the Cause, will not be able to go see my dad until I can get a COVID-19 test because I can't put him at risk. I cannot go home to Ohio and see my parents until I'm able to get that. And so I need everyone to listen to the public health officials. You right now in this moment have more agency than you ever have had before. You can stay at home. I know it's boring. I know Netflix and chill is getting old. But if we just do what we need to do for the next couple of days, we can have a greater impact to make sure that people stay healthy, that the death toll goes down, and that we can come back outside of our house and get back to normal life. It's on us, people. Nobody else can do it but us. So social distance, wash your hands, say them the ABCs, sing them twice just to be safe, wear the mask, and do what's right. Because not just America, but people all around the world are counting on us. Here's a little song I wrote. You might want to sing it note for note. Don't worry. Be happy. Thank you for listening to Pod for the Cause, the official podcast of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights and the Leadership Conference Education Fund. For more information, please visit civilrights.org. And to connect with me, hit me up on Instagram and Twitter at Pod for the Cause. Be sure to subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast app and leave a five-star review. Until then, for Pod for the Cause, I'm Ashley Allison. And remember, a cause is nothing without the people. Don't worry. Be happy.